0: Let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer as we start. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes that we could see you. I think of the donkey who could see the angel, but the prophet who couldn't till you opened his eyes. I think of Elisha and his servant when, Lord, Elisha said to you in prayer for his servant, open his eyes that he can see. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not miss you today, that we would see you high and lifted up. You tell us in this gospel, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And Lord, I pray that you would accomplish that work in our lives today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just give me freedom to communicate. Freedom in your word to open it up, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to take the the, the bread of the word, and to just t- t- to feed upon it today for our hungry souls, I pray this in Jesus name. amen. so we are in john chapter six we 've studied the passage at the beginning when Jesus does a miracle, he feeds the five thousand, this miracle appears in All the Gospels, we see Jesus walking on the water as he has commanded the disciples to return to the region of Capernaum, and last week we studied that miracle as Jesus meets them out on the sea as they are rowing diligently against a headwind, they can't get anywhere and they are fighting it and they see Jesus, he stills the sea, he's walking upon the water and he deals with their fears. They get to the other side, and beginning in this passage that we read today, we see a lengthy discourse where Jesus teaches these people something as a result of what he did in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and this discourse that we study today is not in the other Gospels, but it is here. And it becomes like a watershed event. Because up to this point, I mean, Jesus is extremely popular. He is healing the masses. And they are flocking to him. In fact, at the end of the miracle, we talked about this two weeks ago, they want to take him and make him king. Because they're like, man, if a guy can do this, if he can feed the 5,000 from just this kid's lunch, he can equip an army. We can throw off the Romans. Let's go. And so it's like the high point of the popularity of our Savior in his earthly ministry. Jesus teaches the crowd in this passage that we now study. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, it says, everybody leaves. And Jesus even turns to his closest followers, his 12 apostles, and he says to them, Are you going to leave too? And Peter's like, well, we thought about it, right? I mean, you can read that in the lines, between the lines. Oh, yeah, you know, this is kind of hard stuff. But who else would we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Messiah. So I guess, come hell or high water, we're with you. But, I mean, we go from the high point of Jesus' earthly popularity to by the end of this teaching... Everybody leave. Now, I hope that by the time we get to the end of this chapter, I'm not preaching to an empty church. Okay? I'm not going to try to run you off here. I, I hope that the Lord opens all of our eyes in a way that we see what the Scripture is teaching as we come to terms with it, and we're like Peter, and we're like, well, I don't necessarily understand this, and some of this stuff I may not necessarily like, but to who else would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and I'm with you, Jesus. That's our prayer. Let's pick up the text. Let's see why this is so confrontational, why it is so controversial. Let's start reading it today. On the next day, this is after Jesus walks on the water, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea, this is the crowd who had said, let's make him king, They saw that there had been only one boat there. They also knew that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples. They knew that the disciples had gone away alone. Now, other boats had come from Tiberias. This is on the other sea of the lake, but further south. They'd come from Tiberias. This is a Gentile city. They had come near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks and broke it. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they saw that his disciples were not there. They themselves got into boats and they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, how did you get here? Right? How did you get here? When did you get here? Jesus does not tell them, oh, by the way, I walked on water. Jesus answered this question, when did you get here? Truly, truly, amen, amen. We've seen that kind of equation that Jesus uses in a lot of his teaching here in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I am saying to you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the sign, because you got your belly full. In other words, what he's pointing out to them is, you're looking for me, not because you're really keyed in to the spiritual reality that stands behind the miracle, and who I am, you came looking for me, not because you're looking for me as your savior. Not because you see the spiritual significance of what I'm doing. You're looking for me because you want another meal. That's really what Jesus is getting at and what he says to them. I mean, that's like not like feel-good Christianity. That's like putting it right back on them and going to the motive of the heart. And then he says this. Now, you will notice that what we just read in that verse 26 is closely linked with what we see Jesus saying in the next couple verses. He says, stop working. That's the force of the command. This is an imperative. Stop working, and I want you to like put neon lights around the word for, and we're going to come back to that. It's going to be a big part of the message. Stop working for food that decays. Doesn't it make you ticked off when you go to the store and you buy fresh vegetables and you put them in the fridge and you go to eat them the next day and they're already moldy? Corrupts? Perishes? You throw it away. Stop working for food that decays. Instead, we could read it that way, instead, work for the food that lasts, that endures. Not just now, but forever. See that? Stop working for what Just perishes, but instead work for food that lasts. That will give you eternal life. And it is the son of man. That's an important title of Jesus. It is the son of man who will give it to you. For on him, God the Father has put his seal. I'll explain that right now because I'm not going to come back to it later in the message. But that phrase there, to set his seal, to certify something and then place a seal upon it. What do they call that seal in America? The seal of good house, what, what is the, the good housekeeping seal of approval, right? So whoever does the good housekeeping seal of approval has certified that this product that you're going to buy is going to work. That is what they claim. The person claims that it will do this. It is the one gadget that if you have it in your kitchen, ladies, it will do all your work for you. And it also cleans up really easy and everything else that we know. And so it's certified. And it is sealed. And you can see that seal on the packaging. And it tells you this thing is what it claims to be. And Jesus says, it is God the Father who has certified and sealed that I am who I claim to be. That phrase is used in the rabbinic literature to speak of the role of the Levites in certifying a Passover lamb. A Passover lamb had to be approved as without blemish. And then it could be eaten and used for the Passover. And Jesus is saying here, I have been certified as your sacrifice. And they get it. That's their culture. It goes on and says this. They then said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? That's an important question. It definitely ties back to what he said earlier when Jesus said, don't work for food that perishes, work for what lasts. That'll bring you eternal life. And so they ask a question. They understand the significance of that. And basically we could put that question into our language by saying this. What do I got to do in order to do what God requires of me? What is the work that God requires? Jesus answered them. This is a clear announcement of the gospel. This is the work that God requires to go on a mission, to get baptized, tithe, to read your Bible every day, to a good person, what does God require of you? What is it? It's in the text, and it's pretty clear, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that God requires of us is that we believe. In Jesus. A question comes back to Jesus. So they said to him, then what sign do you do so that we can see it and believe you? And Jesus has got to be saying, well, where were you yesterday? Right? Where were you yesterday when I fed the 5,000? So they say to him, what is the sign that you do that you may see it and we believe you? What work do you perform? And then this links us to our scripture reading this morning. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Right? It didn't come from Moses. There's not a miracle that Moses was able to do of his own power. Who gave it to them? My Father. And now my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world, not just Israel. They said to him, Sir, Don't just give us this bread for 40 years. Give it to us always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Let's stop in the text there. Let's think about what we're looking at here in this passage before us. There is definitely in the book of John a contrast, so to speak, kind of a running parallel between these two men. In one sense, they are the two great redeemers of Israel. Moses is the deliverer of Israel in the Old Covenant, bringing them out of slavery. But Jesus is the great deliverer who delivers us from sin. He doesn't just deliver Israel, he delivers the world. But we see this running all through the book of John that the Israelites keep bringing up Moses. And they kind of pit Moses against Jesus. In John 1.17, John says this, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was talking about the witnesses that the Father gave, that he was the Messiah, clear evidences that he is who we claim to be. When Jesus does that, he also talks about Moses. And he says, if you didn't believe what Moses wrote, how can you believe what I say? If you don't believe in Moses, how do you believe me? And so there again, we see Moses and Jesus. And then here, in chapter 6, we see Moses coming to the forefront of the story. And we see the passage in Exodus 16, when we have taught to us the situation that happens with the giving of manna. Now, let's think about manna for a minute. If you will notice in the text that is in front of us, they say in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna. They also say in the previous verse, notice this again, what miracle or what sign do you do So we can see and believe you. They are insinuating something. It's important we make this note. They are insinuating that Moses did something that was greater than what Jesus did. Now let's think about what happens with the manna. In the miracle of the manna, it happens every day, right? except one day, and that one day is which day? The Sabbath, and you remember in the text what happens there. If you wanted to, like, not plan ahead and not get your food for the Sabbath, and you were like, I'll get it tomorrow, I'll just go out early in the morning, and nobody will see me doing it, I'll just get up early and get my manna, and you went out in the field to get your manna, what happened that day? You went hungry, because there was no manna. Now, it's really interesting to note this. I don't want to take a lot of time to belabor this. But Exodus 16 happens to be in our Bible before Exodus 20, right? Still no math, still no numbers. 16 is before 20. Well, what happens in chapter 20? Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, God institutes what? Remember the sabbath and keep it holy exodus 16 there is no command at that stage in redemptive history to keep the sabbath and yet god is laying some groundwork isn't he he's teaching them something i imagine when they get the ten commandments and they are told remember the sabbath day and keep it holy they remembered what happened a couple weeks before When God said to them, look, I'm going to feed you every day and you can go out and get your food every day. But on one day of the week, there won't be any food there. It's a day that you are to rest. Wow. God is a God who plans ahead. Right. God is a God who plans ahead. And he's teaching them something in advance to lay the groundwork for what he's going to do in Exodus chapter 20. But there's all kinds of things that you see here. So they are insinuating that what Moses did was greater. It was greater in magnitude. How many men did Jesus feed when he broke the bread? 5,000, that's a big deal. But how many people ate manna every day? Like, maybe 2 million? We don't know for sure. Maybe a million and a million and a half? Somewhere between a million and 2 million Jews are picking up manna every day. And they are doing it for how many years? 40 years. And it tells us in the text, when did it quit? When they got to the promised land. And in Joshua 5, it tells us, okay, now they were there. They received the first harvest in the land. And all of a sudden, the next day, you know what happened? Mama got up early because she was used to doing it. And she went out with her two-quart jar. And she's going to pick up what? Manna. It ain't there. And it never came the next day. And it never came again. Ever again. But it did for 40 years. What God does through Moses is a big deal, isn't it? I mean, if you really think about it, that many people for that length of time, God provided for them miraculously in the wilderness daily so that they had something to eat. How many of you have seen pictures of Saudi Arabia? I don't think anybody here had probably ever been there. But I mean, it's not like the land of milk and honey, is it? No. It ain't the land of milk and honey. Now, you go back several thousand years ago, it was, there was a whole different climate then. We talk about climate change. Climate change occurs not because of fossil fuels. If you didn't know that, please know that. It's not fossil fuels. Climates have always changed. I mean, go to the Silk Road and look at the cities that disappeared in the sand of the Gobi Desert that were once thriving metropolises and now they are buried under sand. Had nothing to do with fossil fuel, had nothing to do with carbon emissions. It had everything to do with the reality that, that climates change. They always have, they always will, in microwaves and in macrowaves. Make sure you get that one, okay? Don't just read the Jackson Daily to form your worldview on climate change. So, Saudi Arabia wasn't always as desolate as it is today. They find remains of cattle corrals in the Saudi Arabian desert. Cattle corrals because there were cattle that were grazing there. So it was not as desolate as it is today. Having said that, it still was not the promised land. It was desolate. Now, there are some main points about the manna. First one is, why did God give them manna? It wasn't because they came to God in great faith and said, God, you brought us out of Egypt, and we know you're going to protect and provide for us now. Oh, God, give us something to eat. Is that what they did? No. They came to Moses and they said, How dare you bring us out of the good place that we lived in Egypt, where we had all the cucumbers and the leeks and the garlic we wanted. How dare you bring us out in this desert to die? We're going to stone you. And God said, Hold on a minute. I'm going to feed you. That is grace. Sad to say, that's probably the way God works with us more often than not. Is it not? Grumble, grumble, grumble. It was kind of a honey wafer. Came with the dew. There again, there ain't much dew in Saudi Arabia today, but we won't belabor the point. In Omer, they picked up, each person in the household, they picked up for them about two quarts of the stuff daily. And from that two quarts, you got your meal. Now, periodically in the wilderness wanderings, God also gave them quail to eat. So every once in a while, they got some good protein. But typically, they're eating this thing that's like a coriander seed that's like a honey wafer. And it was fine flour on the ground. You had to go out and you had to pick it up. Now, it's interesting to me again. God fed them, but did they have to do something in order to eat? They did. You didn't get up in the morning, and you slept in, and the dew went off. Somebody else didn't fill your quart jar for you because they couldn't. Right? Because if I took more than I was supposed to, what happened to my manna? It grew maggots pretty quickly. Sabbath principle. Now, I don't think that that means, by the way, that I obviously I think that there were people in Israel who couldn't do it for themselves, who were infirm or elderly, and other people did it for them. I don't want to infer that, but basically the principle is if you wanted to eat, you had to go get it, which is what Paul says in the New Testament, which is what? If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. That's the general principle. Does it apply in every case? No, because some people can't. Sabbath principle, we saw that, and it came until they share the first harvest in the new land. So when we think about manna, there are some lessons there. You can't stockpile grace. It comes in daily doses, doesn't it? Comes in daily doses, our daily bread. You can't stockpile it, it grows maggots. And so, God gives us what we need every day. If we attempt to hoard God's grace, it turns into maggots. And that's just the way it is. And so, when they arrive in the land, it ceased. And there again, it's an important thing God provides from his storehouses in miraculous ways but not when we don't do what he expects. So when they get in the land, the deal is done. Manna goes away. Now, I want to just draw our attention for the closing points of this message to this point. Don't labor. Four. And I want you to notice what Jesus has said in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are looking for me not because you saw the miracles. And he's really there talking about the spiritual reality behind the miracle, what it signifies, the sign. He says, you're looking for me not because you're interested in the spiritual reality. You're looking for me because you got your tummy full. Stop working for food that perishes. Work instead for food that lasts, all the way to eternal life. What does Jesus mean by that? He says, don't work for bread that perishes, do labor for bread that endures. This links verse 25 and 26 clearly in the text, as we already noted, but I want you to notice this word for. That word is for, is very important because it expresses purpose, purpose. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why? For. In other words, he says, don't do it. Don't labor for food that perishes. Labor for food that endures. He's talking about purpose. He is talking about the why. The why we do things. Why do you go to work every day? Well, because i got to make a truck payment. Well, the dumb truck's going to break down and it's going to go to the dump. Don't do it for the truck. Why do you go to work every day? Well, because my kids are hungry and i got to feed them. And i got to take care of the mortgage. Don't do it for that. Why do you do what you do every day? Well, let's think about it. In Ephesians 6, there's a similar statement, and I put this in my own kind of paraphrase. He says, you know, if you're working for somebody, he says, don't do it like a man pleaser who just does what he does to be seen by the boss. In other words, what is he doing? He's working because he wants to please the boss, and he wants to be seen by men, and he's hoping to get a raise. So, don't work as a man pleaser who does things to be seen by the boss. Instead, work as a servant of Christ. That totally changes the job, by the way, because it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're flipping hamburgers at McDonald's and you're doing it for Christ, it gives it a whole new significance. So it says don't do whatever you're doing, whatever it is. Don't do it to be seen by men and to please men. Do it for Christ. And that lasts. If you do it for the food that perishes, it just perishes and it's done. I got the truck. Uh, it's kind of like when I got Tonka toys when I was a kid. And it just look, oh, that'd be great to have those Tonka toys. And then the next day they're in the closet and I never played with them again. Or you're like, oh, if I only had, the, I don't know, what is it, a PlayStation? Probably not anymore because now everything's on the phone. But if only I had that new phone. And then a new one comes out. And then a new one comes out. And it all ends up in the junk. If you only do it for what it is, the thing itself, it is meaningless. But if we do things for Christ and for his glory, it endures. Ecclesiastes, the word Ecclesiastes means the preacher. Ecclesiastes talks a lot about this right at the beginning of the book. He says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything in life is meaningless. It is just working for wind. It is nothing. He goes on, he says this later in the book, he who loves money. Think of this verse. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The one who loves wealth will never get enough money in his income. His checks never big enough. And this is meaningless. And this one is true. When goods increase, when you get a good hay crop, then there are more things to eat the hay. When you got another truck, you got another payment. And it breaks down. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And so what advantage has the owner but to see it with his eyes? He goes on and he says this. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is never satisfied. What is Jesus telling us in this text? If you go through life and you set your ladder against the wall that says earthly human success and money and wealth, that wall will crumble and it will be meaningless. But if you set your ladder against the wall that is Jesus Christ and you build your life upon him and what you do is for him, it does not matter what that thing is that you were called to do, if it is for him and for his glory, in the end it lasts and it meets you in eternity. So do it for what lasts. Jesus does not say quit your job. Right, Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul actually tells a bunch of people in the church he's going to excommunicate them because they all quit their jobs thinking Jesus was coming back today. They quit working. He says, "I'm going to kick you out of the church." That is wrong. Jesus doesn't say just quit your job. He says, "Do your job, but do it for His glory. Work for eternal significance." So, what is the work that God requires of man? What is it in the end? Boy, it's in the text, isn't it? Believe in the one whom he has sent. And we're going to go through the rest of the chapter and they're going to say, man alive, you are the bread of God? You? We know your mom. Her name is Mary. We knew your dad. His name was Joseph. You grew up with us. And we were on the playground with you. And you built a table that sits in my house. Because you're a carpenter. And you're going to tell me that if I'm going to go to heaven when I die, it's be because you are the bread of life and I've got to put all my eternal eggs in your basket. And most of them say, we're not going to believe in you. What is the work that God requires? Some in total. That you put all your eggs in the basket that says Jesus Christ. So that when you stand before God someday and he says, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer that you have Is because Jesus died for me. That's it. It's not because of anything else that you have done. It's because my sin was paid for on the cross by my Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. Lord, forgive us for so many times that we just go through... Every day doing the next thing and the thing that we got to get done and sometimes we get irritated and sometimes we get tired and the grind of daily life becomes a burden to us and it seems like what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes is true. It's just all meaningless. So we quit our job and we hit the road and become a minimalist And we miss Jesus. Help us, Lord, to realize there's nothing inherently wrong with any of the good gifts you give to us. We thank you for them. You bless us with so much, and those things are great, and they are good. But they are meaningless in and of themselves. The glory and the grace is yours. Lord, may we find eternal significance in who you are and just throwing ourselves on your mercy And calling you Lord and Savior. And believing you. And so I pray in Jesus' name.